Get Lit. Welcome back to Get Lit, the literary podcast where we discuss famous works of literature and the authors who wrote them. I'm your host, Steph Svars, joined here by my co-host, John Stricker, who will be taking over lead host responsibilities this week as he goes ahead and reports on his author that he has done research on. So I'm very much excited to learning about this author who I know literally nothing about. Um, so John, I, I'm really grateful for the research that you did. I'm really excited to hear um, about the author that you've chosen to feature. Thank you, Stephanie. I didn't know very much about this author either before I started doing my research, but to celebrate Asian American and Pacific Islander Month, I thought it would be good to highlight a voice from that community. So I will be talking about Carlos Bolosan, who was born in the Philippines and was an activist and writer Excellent. Well, hopefully this is some exposure to our listeners um, and a chance for them to find a new author that they enjoy. Before we go to your research, um, I took up your post of reporting on some news that I found particularly exciting. So um, this sounds like something, unfortunately, you and I aren't going to be able to do this this year just because of timing. Uh, But I would love to, it seems like this is an ongoing project and I wanted to share out about it. So in case some of our uh, West Coast listeners or people who are traveling to the West Coast that listen uh, might be able to uh, take advantage of this. So I'm going to be reporting out on the North Olympic Library library systems poetry walk so um you're curious i see I, on the i'm Zoom. very curious I, what is a poetry walk i need yes. to know more well it would on it's honestly i think like the the activity that you and i would find most enjoyable of all the things that we've reported on but um the north olympic library system has partnered with the olympic national park system to offer this is their eighth season, so clearly this is an ongoing thing and, and something that I hope we can do in the future, in which you can go on a self-guided walk on the trails in the Olympic National Parks um, and read poetry along the way. So um, the library has posted signs throughout different locations on five different trails in the Olympic National Park, including here, the trail names are just beautiful. So I thought they were poetry in themselves and I wanted to read them as well. Um, The Hall of Mosses Trail, the Living Forest Trail, the Madison Falls Trail, that one less so, but uh, the Peabody Creek Trail and the Spruce Railroad Trail. Um, So four out of those five are free, which means anybody can go walk these trails. And I wanted to just also highlight the poets that they featured. Some of them are Gitlet alumni um, and others I wasn't familiar with. So this sounds like a really beautiful learning opportunity. Um, But Emily Bronte is on this list. Robert Burns, E.E. Cummings, Emily Dickinson, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, Robert Frost, Ross Gay, Langston Hughes, Edna St. Vincent Millay, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, Shel Silverstein, Alfred Lord Tennyson, and of course, my personal favorite, Mary Oliver. So the trail is open through May 31st. So it's about two months. They started April 1st in honor of of National Poetry Month, of course. So you can go see them uh, through the end of May. I'm thinking that there is a backpacking trip in order to the Pacific Northwest to go check out the poetry trail. Absolutely. And it is so salient that you brought up the Pacific Northwest because that is where the majority or at least a large portion of our uh, author story takes place. Oh, 
excellent. Well, I wanted to plug this uh, seasonal thing as well, just because I thought it was so cute and endearing and I couldn't not. Um, but in addition to this, I think a lot of people who are familiar with contemporary high school culture um, or past high school culture know that it's prom season. So students from all over the United States are going to their high school proms. And um, the promposal has become increasingly popular. This is obviously something that John and I were doing in high school um, as well, but it's still a thing. And so two of my students actually sent me an email over the weekend uh, and their promposals were our town themed, literary themed promposals, uh, which I thought was just absolutely delightful. So I just wanted to give a shout out um, to the students that use literature in their promposal in some way, shape or form. Uh, it's really cool to see those. And I thought they were beautifully done. So they took little quotes from our town um, and then asked each other to prom using those quotes and a little our town themed graphic. It's a testament to the lasting legacy, not only of the piece, but your enthusiasm for promoting uh, this piece of great literature, Stephanie. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm going to be very happy to accept uh, endorsements from the Thornton Wilder estate. So um, <laughs> I hope all of you high schoolers that have gone to prom have enjoyed it and had a delightful time, but it was a lot of fun to see those promposals. So uh, what a wonderful way to kind of go out in the month of May as we continue to celebrate. Um, and we'll go ahead and I'll turn it over to you, John. I, I can't wait to celebrate the author that you've brought for us today. Today, we're going to be discussing the life of Carlos Sempayan Bolosan. And he was born November 2nd or 24th in either 1913 or 1911. Five other years have also been guessed. But oh. it's known that he was born in Benalonan, Pengazian, in the Philippines. I want to make a disclaimer right off the bat. And much of the information that's found by scholars is from a declassified 2001 FBI file that is uh, wow. based on the surveillance that was done on Belosin during the 50s uh, due to him being a communist suspect. Um, so a lot of this information may be purposely ambiguous because as they were interviewing and talking to to Carlos he may have been purposely trying to hide portions of his background or life to protect those or even himself um so there's a little bit of ambiguity to his life and then to even further this because he had he was very political he may also have exaggerated portions of his life story to fit the political message that he was trying to convey. So there is room for interpretation in much of what we're going to discuss about his life, as can be seen by the fact that I can't even get a reliable date for his birth. <laughs> That's, I mean, obviously very interesting, um, but also maybe some some interesting exploration of how um, authors also craft their own narrative. In addition to crafting their own writing, uh, clearly he had some storytelling elements of his life uh, that he was making use of as well. So uh, cool. I'm really excited to hear more about it. Right. For the purposes of our star sign categorization and famousbirthdays.com profile, we're going to use the date November 2nd, 1913. So that makes him a Scorpio. 
and unusual. Yes, I I think that uh, he'll be a good addition to our Scorpio author ranks. Uh, other people born on November second include Marie Antoinette, hmm. David Schwimmer, Karamo Brown. Oh, and then um, in nineteen thirteen, which is Belosen's birth year. Other people that were born were Rosa Parks, uh-huh. Richard Nixon, Jesse Owens, Gerald Ford, and Camus. That is weird to have two presidents and be born this. I mean, obviously, we know that not all presidents are the same age when they're elected, but it is kind of funny to hear of two presidents born the same year that then are elected at different points in time. So, It definitely is. That surprised me as well. So Belosin's father was... Simeon Belosin and his mother was Marta Simpayan. And so you'll notice that in Filipino culture, the mother's last name is the middle name, and then the father's last name is the last name. So neither of his parents could read or write, and he had four brothers and two sisters, and he was the youngest brother. So that's what the family unit looks like. I think it's important to understand the context about the Philippines into which Belosan was born. So it was annexed by the United States in 1898 and is one of the major territories in U.S. colonization. Uh, Everyone born and living on the Philippines is considered a U.S. citizen at this time, but like many other people considered U.S. citizens, they aren't afforded the same rights as everyone else. So the conditions under United States colonization sort of furthered the wealth concentration in the hands of an economic and political elite. That was a hallmark under Spanish colonization as well, but it had further progressed under U.S. colonization. Many, many people immigrated from the Philippines around this time. By 1930, which is around the year that Belosan came to the United States mainland, 110,000 Filipinos had come to Hawaii and 40,000 had immigrated to the mainland. Um, And the reason so many people could freely travel is because they were considered U.S. nationals and were excluded from the very racist Uh, anti-immigration laws at the time that many people know, like the Chinese Exclusion Act and others. So they were able to migrate because they were U.S. citizens. That's really interesting. I would imagine, so even though they have this sort of quasi-legal protection, um, you know, that doesn't really necessarily extend to the culture. So I'm curious to see sort of how that impacted once they got to the United States and were afforded the ability to travel freely sort of in between um, what this kind of looked like post-World War I entering World War II. Right, and and we'll get into that. I think it's important to address why people are leaving the Philippines at this time. It's, it's for economic opportunities. The majority of people leaving were single men uh, looking to better their economic fortunes, all as a result from the wealth inequality from colonization. So there's our context. So now let's look at... In 1930? They're coming to the United States in 1930 for better economic prospects? Yes. Oh, no. Not not just 1930, but like up to 1930, from 1898 all the way to 1930. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Yes. Good good clarification, Stephanie. As we know, 1929 is a difficult year, uh, leading to a difficult, depressive decade. Um, Let's focus on... Belosin's family now. 
His father lived in a small grass hut next to the land that he worked, while his mother and the rest of the family lived in a palm leaf house in the nearby city. His mother sold salted fish in the public market to help feed and clothe the family. Remember, he has four other brothers and two sisters, so a lot of mouths to feed. Um, However... At seven years old, Belosin moves from living with his father to living with his mother. So for some reason, he was the only child living with his father. Uh, but mm. then even he went to live in the city with his mother. Um, school in the Philippines was primarily conducted in English following the annexation of the territory. Belosin attended public school off and on until he was 13. And then he went to high school for three semesters where he may have been part of the school newspaper. So again, school newspapers are the incubator for literary greats, Stephanie. Yes. After the third semester, Belosin quit school and returned to work on the farm. Belosin's oldest brother did finish high school and became a teacher and immigrated to the United States. And his second oldest brother also immigrated to the United States. So it's interesting because you see there is at least uh, maybe some evidence that his family isn't as poor as what he would later go on to claim because they were able to educate his brother all the way to high school and send him off to the United States. Uh, The reason I say that is because Belosin later claimed to have not spoken any almost any English at all by the time he was coming to the United States and that he came from a very poor background. But here we're seeing that maybe the reality is that they were closer to what constituted middle class in the Philippines because of these educational opportunities they were able to afford their sons. Mm. So following his other two brothers in 1930 at age 17, Belosin's family sold part of their land to raise the $75 required for a steerage ticket on a boat to Seattle. After he wow. arrived in Seattle, he immediately made his way to California to meet up with his eldest brother and to find some work. It looks like he started by washing dishes in a hotel. Okay. And so I'd be curious to see, I wonder if his older brother was able to teach in the United States. Like he he obviously came over to the United States and if his background was in teaching, um, was he able to go ahead and further that? I can't say for certain, but I imagine that he was able to teach inside of the Filipino diaspora at the very least. Mm-hmm. Belosin likely quickly left his eldest brother, who was residing in a small farm town in California, and he eventually moved to Los Angeles, where his second eldest brother helped support him as he pursued a life as a self-educated intellectual. So when he immediately got to LA, he enrolled in a public high school, but he found that they, he wasn't learning the things he wanted to learn, so he just quit and went to libraries, read as much as he could, and started writing. And his brother was willing to support him while he was doing this self-education, which I think is a, a big, uh, gracious thing that his second eldest brother did for him. 
Yes, that's a very generous, very generous support. Um, but we have had several authors who uh, were self-educated and, and who used the public library system to really sort of support their careers in different ways. I think actually, speaking of California, Ray Bradbury was one of those. Not necessarily self-educated, but reliant on the public library system um, and the libraries to go ahead and further his career. Yes, so, I think here at Get Lit, we can say we are strongly pro-library. Yes. <laughs> um, for those of you interested in Belosin's life in L.A., I found a tour map where you can look at the important spots in L.A. through the eyes of Belosin. So if you're interested, that's in the uh, University of Washington's exhibit, online exhibit about Belosin. So I thought that was pretty cool. Very. Um, Belosin remembered these early days in America as violent years of unemployment, prolonged, irni- prolonged illness, and heart-wrenching labor union work. So we haven't gotten to that last bit yet, but we will in just a second. But I just want to give the impression that these were not carefree times for him, that even though he was going through a self-education process, he was finding a lot of adversity as a new immigrant to the United States. Especially sort of based on what you've said, his knowledge of English, too. Right. And reports conflict about his proficiency in English. Um, And I'm personally convinced that it's likely he was pretty proficient by the time he had immigrated because you'll see very soon he becomes the poet laureate of California. So in 1932. (laughs) So I imagine in two years of language learning, you don't uh, gain enough proficiency to be a a poet laureate. Huh. Well, maybe there's hope for us. (laughs) There's still time for me to learn English in two years, Stephanie. Yes. We've had 29 years of of learning. (laughs) Maybe we can become poet laureates too. Yes. Um, so also contrary to his autobiography, Belosin may not have completed much farm labor work himself, but he did write and produce publicity work on behalf of the labor unions that existed. Um, and let's take a moment to talk about why labor unions were so important for this community. So there were hostile labor practices that were centered on Filipino immigrants that systematically segregated races and ethnicities and were perpetrated primarily by European Americans. Uh, These labor organizations grew out of these conditions, and at large, the European American population saw the immigration of Filipinos as a problem, as evidenced by a front-page editorial in the newspaper in Seattle two days after Belosan immigrated. They were addressing the Filipino immigration problem is how they Mm. categorized this uh, wave of immigrants. So you see there's racism, there's economic disenfranchisement, unfair labor practices. So if these people don't band together and demand a more fair working environment, it's not going to happen. And luckily, that's what they were doing in the 1930s. And so Belosin gave himself over to this organization and was uh, writing publicity works on their behalf. At the same time he was participating in labor organization, Belosin submitted poetry to various publishers in California and was chosen as poet laureate of the state in 1932. Four of these poems were published in an anthology under the name Carl Belosin, not Carlos ah. Belosin. 
So I am speculating, but I am sure that it's to take a little bit of the ethnic edge out of his names. They would maybe be more acceptable to the general public. Yeah, I'd be interested to see if that was a him choice, right? We've had lots of our authors, for example, especially our women who went by um, maybe a more uh, masculine name like George or just using their initials. Um, for protection, I think, in a lot of ways, or if this was something that was sort of thrust on his publications um, by the publishing companies. So that would be a really interesting thing to look up. It's a great question, Stephanie. I, I'm not sure, and I think that would shed a lot of light on, on the, maybe this particular uh, pseudonym. The names of the poems, by the way, were Alien Wind, Destiny, Greenery, and Immortality. So... Mm-hmm some real meaty topics that he's diving into. Yes. Uh, by 1934, Belosin became the publicist for the United Cannery Agricultural Packing and Allied Workers of America, which was affiliated at that time with the CIO and was first established in 1933. So you see how, how nascent these labor organizations are. He, for a time, produced and edited a bi-monthly workers' magazine called New Tide, and this publication led to him meeting union organizer Chris Minslavis and the editor of Poetry Magazine. So, the New Tide sought to interpret the struggles and aspirations of the workers, the fight for sincere intellectuals against fascism and racial oppression in concrete national terms. Again... Heady, political, uh, very much advocating for his community. Right. There's, this, is, this is very direct. This is not a subtle um, introduction of his concepts and ideas. So No, and it didn't last all that long. Uh, though he was also writing in other news outlets. He was writing in the Philippine Commonwealth Times, which is the local Filipino-American newspaper. His articles were pro-labor and pro-union, so very consistent here. And just to understand the level of resistance that the labor unions met uh, around this time, the founder and president, as well as the secretary of the labor union that Belosin was associated with, were assassinated by business owners. Wow. Uh, And not the business owners themselves, but they took a contract out to assassinate these two high-profile union leaders. So they really saw this as a threat and wanted to stop union organization by any means necessary. Yikes. By 1936, Belosin's health had drastically declined. He had contracted tuberculosis and he was confined to the Los Angeles County Hospital from 1936 to 1938. That's two years in the hospital. Wow. Right. During this hospital stay, Belosin had a number of ribs removed, a kidney removed, and a kneecap removed. All for those various common... ailments. Oh, so not a common treatment for tuberculosis is to remove ribs. The ribs were removed so that they could remove part of his diseased lung, and the kidney was removed potentially as a part of a like excess drinking, but it was unclear, and then a kneecap was removed because of a cancer of the kneecap. Is that a thing? I guess. That's what what my sources say. Interesting. That last... I wonder what FBI agent got that wrong. Well, just wait. They got it even wronger because... (laughs) Do you mean more wrong? No, I like like the word wronger. 
for this context, I think it fits. Wronger, absolutely. Right. So because he had a kneecap removed, he had a pronounced limp. But the FBI incorrectly assumed that he had a wooden leg because of his the way that he walked. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Add to the lore. Maybe that kind of makes him a little more piratey, which I feel like if you're looking for you know, your outlaw communist labor union leader, um, having pirate-like tendencies is probably pretty good for your rebellious image. He needs he needs someone to really, really reshape his image in, in the peg leg kind of uh, manner, Stephanie. <laughs> Thank you for uh, taking on this, this work. No problem. Close friends provided books to Bolosin while he was in the hospital. And honestly, a wave of creativity inspired him to become a writer while he was confined. And right after he got out of the hospital, he wrote at a very quick speed for the next five years. And this is what he says of this period in time. I was able to put my grand dream on paper in literate form. When it began, my relentless creative activity began, and many things followed from my typewriter for two restless years. Poetry, short stories, articles on political and cultural subjects, and books. That's sort of interesting that he didn't, prior to this, consider himself like, I don't know, a literary anything. That I guess if he was really toying around with ideas, you know, philosophy and that sort of thing, that maybe he wouldn't. But he'd already been a published author and was already, I'm assuming, making money as being a part of these labor unions by using the power of his pen. So that's sort of interesting that this um, turn into becoming a, a literary professional didn't occur until after that time. I think that's a good observation, and I imagine it was changing his outlook from using words to explicitly ask for something versus becoming a writer and maybe taking on less direct subjects. And this is this must have been the time when he felt comfortable doing that. So... All of Belosin's works describe the experience of growing up in a rural area of the Philippines, chronicling social and economic conditions created by American occupation and centuries of Spanish colonialism, and also the push factors that drove his generation to the United States. So that's the focus of the majority of his work, uh, which I think makes perfect sense knowing what we know up until now about his life. Unfortunately, he didn't retain copies of his work due to having to constantly move, and he wrote many of his poems and correspondence to friends and um, others, and he left full manuscripts with his friends for safekeeping, so by the time he died, there was no collected works available, and they had to take out ads in newspapers to try and uh, get his friends to bring all of his writings into a central place. Wow. So I thought that was just interesting. He really wrote at this breakneck speed, and he was just interested in getting the work out and not creating a legacy for himself. Mm. Yeah, that is a a really unique challenge, right? Very cool. Right. He also wrote at breakneck speeds. So his first book, The Laughter of My Father, was written in 12 days. His second book, The Voice of Bataan, was written in three days, and his most famous work, America is in the Heart, was written in 24 days. So he's turning this stuff around really quickly. 
Uh, but before he gets to those novels, he gets a big break. Uh, he is a civilian during World War II because of his declined health, but he was selected by the Saturday Evening Post to fulfill one of the Four Freedoms essays that was requested by President Roosevelt. The freedom that he specifically wrote about was the freedom from want, and in his essay, he created a lyrical testament to the struggles of the American laborers. It was also incongruously accompanied by the Norman Rockwell painting of a white American family on Thanksgiving that I think we're all very familiar with. What? Yeah, but the accompanying (laughs) article was written by Belosin. That's an interesting juxtaposition. Um, It does sound actually kind of Dickensian, (laughs) the freedom from want, I think, in a little bit of a way. Um, did he, do you know if he got to choose the theme or if they just said, write an essay on freedom from blank? No. So Roosevelt created or had established these four freedoms in, okay. in his so, political writings. And then he asked for, uh, other writers to expand on the four freedoms in a series of Saturday evening post articles. And so, uh, Belosin was selected for this particular freedom. Okay. <laughs> Featuring Norman Rockwell. Right. And a white family at Thanksgiving. It just doesn't feel like it goes together. Uh, But this was such a high honor that it really contributed to his growing literary stature. And it pushed him into the 1940s, where he had his most successful decade in terms of publication. Uh, Another thing that helped him is the view of Filipinos changed for the positive during World War II because they were fighting against the Japanese for the uh, the Allied and United States war effort. Uh, additionally, resistance against communism lessened and labor organization because the Soviet Union was also an ally of the United States during the, the Second World War. So uh, the moods about these changing views to both communism and Filipinos is captured in a 1942 poem that Belosin wrote called Portraits with Cities Falling. Um And he was very prolific in this period. In 1942, he published two volumes of poetry, one entitled Chorus for America and the other Letters from America. The Voice of Bataan, which I previously mentioned as a novel, was in 1943. And he hit the bestseller list with his 1944 short story series uh, entitled The Laughter of My Father, which was based on a series of folk tales from the Philippines. Lastly, his now most famous work was published in 1946, and it's his semi-autobiographical novel called America is in the Heart, which, uh, as I said before, was semi-autobiographical and sort of talked about his whole life leading up to this moment and the way that Philippines were, Filipinos were treated in America. However, after the war, uh, the Cold War begins and the label of communist was used to provide cover to surveil and intimidate liberal political causes, including Belosin and his labor organization that he was involved with. He wasn't the leader of it, but he was involved with it as the publicist. So government agencies such as the FBI and the CIA targeted labor movements and attempted to systematically dissolve the union that Belosin was associated with by trying to deport the members, including Minslavis, who was one of his friends. Uh, They ended up losing those deportation cases in court, but obviously it left the union in a weakened state, both uh, politically and financially. Um, 
and at this time, Belosin was also blacklisted, which meant that he was unable to work in, in many jobs and secure a living for himself. Um, he moved in 1952 to Seattle to edit the labor union's yearbook, and he sold poems entitled, I Want the Wide American Earth, to raise money for the union's legal defense fund. Unfortunately, also in 1952, Belosin had another bout with tuberculosis, and he stayed for another year at the Ferlin Sanatorium. He was kept apprised of the union's developments, and he also developed a romance with Josephine Patrick, who was separated but still married to her husband. So she was a communist member uh, as well, and they sort of met in these communist circles, and this romance Not in the hospital. It, well, no. So they they like <laughs> the romance was cemented in the hospital. But that's not where they were met. But because of this romance, the Communist Party actually expelled her. Not Pelosi. What? He had no penalties. But they exposed Josephine Patrick uh, for her relationship with Pelosi. Who did the Communist Party? They expelled her from the party. For immorality. For okay. Right? That's trash. Yeah. That's utter trash. I don't think it's fair. I think that the woman took the brunt of this unfair punishment. Uh, okay. That also makes no It makes no sense as to why they would... They, I really feel like they can't afford to lose members at this time. Yeah. But. You know what? It does seem petty to me, too. Okay. While in Seattle, Belosin struggles with alcoholism and he was often homeless because he is blacklisted and cannot afford to support himself. And he relies on his friends to occasionally house him in his manuscripts, as we talked about earlier. Um, He did start several additional manuscripts during this time, but they were lost just due to the situation of how he was living. Uh, He reflected on his condition in a poem entitled Landscape with a Bottle. So... This is a pretty dark period for him, and unfortunately, he doesn't recover. On September 11th, 1956, Belosin passed out in Seattle's city park. Uh, He had recently received a Carnegie Institute fellowship to focus on his writing, and he was living in the Holland Hotel across from the park. So it seems like if he was able to hang on a little bit longer, maybe his fortunes would have changed because he had this fellowship and a permanent place of housing. But he did die from complications due to the tuberculosis and pneumonia, and he's buried in Mount Pleasant's Cemetery in Seattle's Queen Anne neighborhood. Really? Yes. Okay. I have been there. He was in the midst of creating Mm. a novel about Seattle's Skid Row at that time as well, so he hadn't given up writing even though he was in this dark place. Hmm. And being there, uh, you'll have to put it back on your list now, Stephanie, because we have someone else's grave to visit. A generation of organizers were inspired by Belosin's actions, as well as the uh, labor union he was a part of, and they ended up filing a class action lawsuit against several canneries that resulted in a Supreme Court case and an amendment to the Civil Rights Act in 1991 which wow. is almost contemporary uh, in, in, in terms of authors that we discuss, at least. Um, unfortunately, the union that Belosin was associated with later struggled with corruption when the Philippines uh, came under the rule of the Marcos regime, 
and Marcos mm-hmm. himself was found criminally liable for the murder of some union reform leaders, which is the first time in American history that a foreign head of state was found guilty of crimes. So that's interesting. an interesting side note. And especially now that uh, and Marcos currently is... very relevant. Yes, Marcos's <laughs> yeah. son was just voted uh, president of the country. So this is uh, a history that is not that far away. For two decades after his death, his work was largely forgotten. But in 1973, a group of young Asian Americans discovered his work and republished America is in the Heart. There's a permanent exhibition to Belosan in Seattle's International District. And in 2018, the Belosan Center for Filipino Studies Initiative was established at the University of California, Davis, to create a physical space to advocate for the rights and welfare of the Filipino diaspora. So his legacy lives on very strongly, especially on the West Coast and with the Filipino community. But I think it's important for us to recognize, especially in Asian American Pacific Islander Month, uh, the contributions that have been made by historical figures and the adverse conditions under which these communities have operated in the United States. Absolutely. And and thank you for bringing him to our attention as well. Um, I'm obviously a huge poetry fan and, and I'm really excited to looking into his work a lot more um, and getting a chance to read some of these poems. So uh, thank you, John, for bringing him to us. Hopefully this spreads his legacy a little bit further in the Midwest. A lot of our listeners are Midwesterners. So um, please go ahead and, and look up some of the works that sounded interesting to you. But I think even sort of despite his not only early, but also pretty unfortunate end, um, that even during his lifetime, not being focused on the legacy necessarily element of his writing, that it's certainly one that has stuck around um, and one that hopefully will continue to flourish with all of these new initiatives that are meant to um, expose and keep his work in the public eye. Well stated, Stephanie. And listeners, if you're interested, the University of Washington has an excellent online exhibit where you can even comb through the entire released FBI file uh, on <laughs> Belosan, which uh, I just breezed through it quickly. It looked very interesting. Um, but there's incredible amounts of work that's been done in cementing his legacy there. So uh, I'd like to end our reflections on Belosan with a quote from America is in the Heart. America is not a land of one race or one class of men. We are all Americans that have toiled and suffered and known oppression and defeat. From the first Indian that offered peace in Manhattan to the last Filipino pea picker. America is not bound by geographical latitudes. America is not merely a land or an institution. America is in the hearts of men that died for freedom. It is also in the eyes of men that are building a new world. America is a prophecy of a new society of men, of a system that knows no sorrow or strife or suffering. America is a warning to those who would try to falsify the ideas of free men. End quote. I think that that is a succinct summary of the America we all want to live in. I think an excellent way to end this episode, John. So thank you for reading that for us. Um, And I appreciate all the work that you put into this episode. So thank you so much for doing that. And of course, for our listeners, thank you so much for your support of this podcast. And thank you, as always, for keeping it lit.